It's the 18th of April, 2015, and this is episode 205. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by John Light, one of my favorite people in the space and another catalyst who has taken the idea of decentralized technology and tried to expand what is possible with it. John, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Adam. It's always a pleasure being here. The last time you were on the show, when Stephanie interviewed you at a conference just ages ago, it's been, it's been, has it been a year yet? That was December 2013, so <laughs> it's over a year at this point. It's pretty incredible just how fast time has flight since then. Yeah, that's been my experience too, is just that the amount of stuff that's happening and just the ability to kind of keep up with it is is not so great. So, you know, even though I like you a lot, I don't know what you're up to. So, you know, what's, what's the last year been like for you? It's been pretty incredible. I've been involved in a, a few different projects. I've been doing consulting for various digital currency companies since I moved out to the Bay Area in early 2013. The last company that I worked for was a company developing Ripple Gateway software as a backend for a Bitcoin exchange. And so they were going to use Ripple technology to enable some pretty cool things with their Bitcoin exchange business. Since then, I've been involved as a freelancer for a couple different projects. After I interviewed Greg Slapak from the OK Turtles Foundation on my P2P Connexus podcast, they put out a call that they needed someone to fill a fundraising role. I just finished up my contract at the last company, so I applied for that and got accepted. So since then, I've been doing freelance writing for OK Turtles, grant writing, and working on copywriting for the upcoming crowdfunding campaign. Since then, I've also worked on a book. I've gotten involved with a company called Bitseed, which is developing a Bitcoin full node hardware and have been working in the past couple of weeks to try to save my meetup from oppressive legislation coming down from Sacramento. So definitely keeping busy. (laughs) (laughs) And then the one thing you didn't mention, I think, I think, well, you mentioned it offhand, but also you've started doing, it's a weekly show. Semi-weekly. Semi-weekly. I try to do it every week, but uh, sometimes life other things in life take priority. So, you know, for instance, right now, I haven't done an episode since maybe mid-March, but definitely have a few shows in the hopper that I'm just working through editing and stuff. And um, yeah, I started the P2P Connexus podcast shortly after you started the LTB coin program, I started accepting more shows onto the network. I had realized that I had a gap in my schedule where I could do something new if I wanted to, take on some sort of extracurricular activity. And I had been thinking of ways that I could expand some of the content on my blog. I thought, you know, well, I could just do more written pieces or I could start doing something a little bit more like some of the previous independent media that I had worked on, which is like doing interviews with people and releasing audio content. That's the opportunity that I kind of seized on late last summer, early fall and started the P2P Connects Us podcast that's now on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, I think in its 15th or 16th episode at this point. I came at this from the opposite direction, right? I came at this from getting interested in the topic, starting to do the podcast, and using that as a vehicle to kind of learn about a lot of this stuff. 
And then from there, I've gotten into other projects, but it all kind of started for me from the podcast. And I look at what you've done, and it seems to me that you've done basically the opposite of that. You know, when you're working on, because your show isn't about Bitcoin explicitly, it's about peer-to-peer technology and technologies, you know, the sharing economy, things that really can connect individual users within systems, as opposed to just focusing on the money layer. That's fascinating to me. Talk to me about why you wanted to do this show. Are there larger aspirations? Is this a Trojan horse vehicle, you know, to, to try and get these ideas out there? It's a little bit of all of the above. I guess to provide a little bit of history, before I, I worked with a guy named Adam Kokesh who had a podcast called Adam versus the Man. And that was mostly focused on some more controversial or confrontational kinds of topics. There's definitely value in that as having that role in the media. I found myself being more and more interested in kind of focusing on solutions and kind of like what comes next. Like, okay, we've accepted that there are some things that are maybe wrong with society, some like structural problems that need to be addressed. What are some of the solutions that are out there for that? And I saw peer-to-peer technology, not only like electronic and computer kind of related technology, but social technology as well as being something that can fix some of the, the, the power struggles that are, that are going on in society. I started P2P Connects Us, the blog, as a way of exploring some of those topics. And the, the uh, podcast has just be, basically become an extension of that. The first half of the podcast covers news, like current events. And then the second half of the podcast is interviews with, with people who are working on various projects about peer-to-peer philosophy, technology, or culture. Through doing some of these interviews, we're able to explore some of the ways that, that people are using peer-to-peer technology to improve their personal life as well as their communities. What I heard you say was that there are problems. In the past, you've worked on you know, media outlets that have focused on the problems, and that at a certain point, and this was my experience too, I think, it becomes kind of counterproductive and just like more depressing than anything else to just focus on the problems when the problems that we have seem so intractable when you try and look at it in the existing paradigm, right? How do you, how do you solve systemic problems without doing something fundamental to the system? Peer-to-peer represents a way to do that because it doesn't necessarily need a system. It's a system unto itself as opposed to a system of organization, one of many types of systems of organization that don't necessarily require everybody to do exactly the same thing. There's choice in it kind of inherently you know, otherwise it would just be a monopoly like everything else. Right, right. It, what, what's interesting to me about peer-to-peer technology is that, that every, or peer-to-peer ideas in general, is, is the concept of peer-to-peer is that every node is kind of autonomous or independent and can come freely come and go from a system kind of as they please, and the system itself will continue functioning with or without them. When you apply that, that kind of idea, not just to, to computer networks, but to people and organizations, uh, communities of people, it starts to have a much more broad effect of liberating people and freeing them to make decisions about their own life that a top-down hierarchical command and control kind of power structure simply doesn't provide. While in the previous independent media efforts like Adam vs. The Man, they did talk about some solutions. It was more on a philosophical level. What I'm exploring with P2P Connexus is really at a practical level, like what are people doing today? What kind of projects are people working on today to implement some of these ideas and create a new peer-to-peer society? What do you think is the most exciting thing 
right now in peer-to-peer technology? If somebody doesn't know anything about peer-to-peer technology, what's the thing, or maybe there isn't a thing, maybe it's just different for every person, that would be so cool to them if only they knew about it? It's the blockchain. Bitcoin as the genesis of this, this new kind of technology. But the blockchain as a peer-to-peer technology, I think is probably the most interesting because what it does is it provides people, the society, the world with an authoritative source of truth in terms of like this is what at a mathematical level these computers have come to consensus about as to, to what the current state of this ledger of ownership of assets is. And those assets can be cryptocurrency. Those assets could be stock or real estate property or identities. We've got the cryptocurrency figured out. Cryptocurrency kind of came built in. And now we're exploring blockchain-based ownership of other kinds of assets like stocks, like what Overstock is uh, trying to do, and identity which is a really interesting idea to me because historically society has needed a central uh, authority to maintain a registry of identities, whether we're talking about individual identities through like the social security number or tax ID number kind of system in the United States or online, you know, having certificate authorities that basically vouch for the authenticity of public keys as being attributed to a, a particular website identity. And the blockchain just kind of removes the need for these, these trusted third parties or, or central registries altogether. And I think that's, that's really interesting. So definitely the blockchain. One of the projects, you know, I talked with Jack Conti about maybe six months ago, who's the founder of, of Patreon and also a musician whose work I had been familiar with for several years before because he's this kind of quirky Bay Area artist uh, who's song? I think I've even played one on the show once. Anyways, I told him we were doing this LTB coin thing. And I told him, you know, I thought one of the really cool things we could do was to take some of the LTB coin that is earned by people creating content for us and have them essentially give it to the people who support them with dollars through the Patreon system. I don't know if we ever actually talked about that, but that's exactly what you did. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. That's so cool. So tell me about, tell me about your Patreon campaign. I definitely had not heard of that until just now. So that's, that's really uh, a really funny coincidence. I didn't start this until maybe uh, halfway through the podcast in terms of like where it's at right now. I wanted to try to make it somewhat sustainable, give people some way to contribute other than um, sending me Bitcoin tips. And I was thinking, like, what do I just put a PayPal button on my website, or what? How? Like, what? What can I do to give people the opportunity to donate with fiat if they want to, or have some sort of, for me, ideally, a recurring payment uh, a system? And Patreon was something that I came across last year. I think it was actually thanks to you. You might have introduced me to the idea of Patreon at least. But what's really interesting about the Patreon is people can who like content produced by a particular content creator can basically pledge to give a certain amount of money for each piece of content that's being created. If an artist produces four pieces of content in a month and somebody has pledged a dollar per content, then at the end of the month, they get charged for $4. Individually, this might not seem that powerful, but when you have an artist that has hundreds or thousands of fans and each pledge even just a dollar a piece per piece of content, 
this adds up really quickly. And so I thought this was a really interesting way that I could start to monetize some of the content that I was producing and give people a way to participate in a way that might make this a sustainable venture in and of itself. And then I thought, you know, what can I do to incentivize people to participate in this kind of recurring system in a way that doesn't make it look like equity or something? I've been really interested in kind of shared value, shared ownership kind of structures like cooperatives and collectives. But and, legally, it's a and, mess right and, now. Yeah, legally, it's a mess right now. I mean, even with the Jobs Act and stuff, it's just like, you know, doing public crowdfunding or huge IPOs or ICOs or any of these things that are happening, it's just a legal mess. And so I just decided to make it really clean. It's like it's a voluntary giveaway program, basically. It's not a legal obligation. There's no contracts involved. It's just like, hey, if you contribute to my Patreon campaign and send me your counter wallet address for the proportion of money that you are pledging relative to everybody else, you will get that proportional amount of a chunk of LTB coin that I'm setting aside each time I get my distribution from Let's Talk Bitcoin and basically share in the rewards so that you know the more successful the podcast is, the more LTB coin you can earn as a result of, of basically helping to support. Well, and you have it set as a fixed percentage too, right? Yeah, so it's 20%, it's 20%. of the weekly giveaway. I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 20, it, uh, it was an arbitrary number. I had to pick something, but I want to make it something that incentivizes people to participate. And so I just picked 20%. So far, I'm giving away about 40 or 50,000 LTB coin a week to all the people who've become patrons of the P2P Connexus Patreon campaign and sent in their counter wallet addresses. You know, what type of a reaction have you had to it? I know that like doing anything with these tokens basically means that you're taking your audience that, you know, you could have and you're saying, okay, one in every 100 of you, that's who I want to talk to with something like this. So, I mean, have you seen relative to participation in the overall program? Have people participated? We have 11 patrons on the campaign overall. We have five of them that have actually sent in their counter wallet addresses. And perhaps if I go back and prod some of the other ones, they might actually send in their counter wallet addresses. In terms of the kind of economic incentives that it sets up, people who get in earlier will get more coins relative to, you know, if there were a bunch more supporters. Does that create an incentive for them to discourage other people from becoming patrons or something like that? You know, like that's a possibility, but I don't think that's happening. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm sure in game theory, that would be the economically rational thing to do. But because the amounts of money that we're talking about are so small at this point, it's probably not even worth it. But nonetheless, people are collecting a, a pretty substantial amount of LTV coin at this point, which could, if the LTV coin value is right. if we're uh, successful appreciates we'll long term then it, it'll yeah. certainly be a, a healthy reward for me i was less concerned about the specific numbers and just really concerned about or interested in providing some way of giving back to the community that's supporting me for me ltb coin is more or less free i get it just for doing what i would have already been doing anyways which is producing a podcast giving that away to people who are providing me like fiat things that actually pay bills and stuff in return was the easiest 
first step that I could take to, to start to give back to the community that's been supporting the podcast. There's not a whole lot of like feedback or discussion around it. This is actually the first time that anybody's really asked me about it. It's not a whole lot to talk about, really, aside from the fact that this is happening. I've done it. Other people can do it, too, now. If, if there are similar kind of app coin or, or community coins that are out there, I've just taken this opportunity to use Patreon not only as a way to maybe make the, the podcast itself a sustainable business, but take an LTB coin and said, hey, we can proportionally reward you for your involvement in this with this community coin that that might be worth more in the future and kind of see how that turns out. Like, I don't know if those people became patrons because they, of the LTV coin program or whether that's just a nice benefit that comes along with that. I would have to do a survey and find out. <laughs> So, John, you know, you've kind of broken ground on this idea. And I'm glad, like I said, I'm really glad that you came up with this in parallel and just decided to do it because it would have taken me a lot longer. I was waiting until we had Patreon campaigns integratable into your profile on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Because the profiles on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I don't know if you've seen them since we relaunched them, but they now have essentially your credits. So all of the blog posts that you've made, all of the forum posts that you've made, and then additionally some other statistics and things like that. This is kind of going to be the base level, I think, of, of the platform uh, in the not too distant future is that if you're not publishing on a blog, if you're not publishing on a front page, you still can publish to your profile. And you also can use your profile as essentially a center for fundraising for whatever your projects are and also to sell tokens that you're selling with vending machines and stuff like that. That's kind of what my vision is for the Patreon thing. I think it's a great, it's like, it's a good piece of the equation because it handles the dollar part. It has a separate reputational system. It has a separate audience that you can appeal to that's outside of the cryptocurrency space. There are all kinds of reasons to do it. Definitely keep us informed on this. So people who are interested in supporting the P2P Connects.us show or uh, supporting John Light, patreon.com slash P2P Connects Us will take you right to the page and you can find out all about the, the podcast as well as the LTB coin giveaway program. So on a slightly different note, both you and I live in California, and California is a great place to live. It's wonderful weather. It's a beautiful day outside, but I hate it here. Oh my <laughs> God, I hate it here. And I hate it here because there's so damn much uncertainty when it comes to what the stupid state government is going to do that we really don't know what's going on really at any given time. And there's this huge culture of financial repression essentially in California because financial, large financial companies have control of the mechanisms that allow, that determine whether or not new financial companies and new financial systems can come into the state. They're threatening to do something particularly irritating right now, and I know that this has been annoying to you too. Can, can you bring us up to date? California is definitely the state I hate to love for similar reasons. It's a beautiful state. It's, it's got wonderful weather, and even a lot of the people are really enjoyable to be around. I don't know if it's something in the water in Sacramento or what it is, but there is this bill that state assembly member named Matthew DeBabney, he's from, I believe, the San Fernando Valley or somewhere in Southern California. He's introduced this bill called AB1326, which is essentially the bit license. The bit license has come to California. He's just introduced it. Hasn't come up for a vote yet. But when I read through the bill, I realized that it would force my meetup, Buttonwood SF, to, to close down. It would essentially make all of the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency trading that happens at this meetup 
illegal if the people who were doing the trading didn't get one of these bit licenses, which of course is very difficult to obtain. So, so now Buttonwood, just to be clear, uh, your Buttonwood meetup is a Satoshi Square in, in other terms, right? Right, right. Other places have called it Satoshi Square. At the time, there was like Satoshi Square New York and there was a Satoshi Square LA. And I guess I just wanted to be different. So I called it Buttonwood SF. It's the same idea. If you can imagine like local Bitcoins in a meetup, meet once a week, trade cryptocurrencies face-to-face, peer-to-peer. For me, I started it as a way of giving people a safe and accessible space to trade cryptocurrencies, to learn about cryptocurrencies from people who have already bought some and, and figured out how to store them safely and all of that. And it's been really successful at doing that in the almost year and a half that the meetup has been running. And now this legislation comes along and and threatens to kind of uh, eliminate the safe and accessible option for people to get into cryptocurrencies. And as the kind of organizer of the meetup, I had to do something to to try and save it. So So I started this petition. You've started a petition essentially saying this bill needs to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Withdraw the bill. Withdraw the the bill. bill. Okay. And so... What the bill effectively would do is it would take this ad hoc, in-person, amateur meetup and it would essentially turn it into the, it would give it the same requirements as a money services business in the state of California. Well, it would give the individual participants this, this. Oh, so it's not even just you. It's every single person who would be there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the meetup is just like, it's a website. It, It doesn't, there's no money changing hands through the meetup as an organization itself, if you can even call it an organization, it's just a, a meetup on meetup.com. It's the people who are there buying and selling Bitcoins who would fall under their designation as a quote unquote virtual currency business. I mean, the, the real quick summary of what the, this bill does is it says, quote, prohibit any person in this state from engaging in the business of virtual currency, unquote. Unless they have a specific exemption, which is defined in the bill as being a specific government agencies, existing money transmitter licenses and commercial banks and merchants who accept Bitcoin as a form of payment. Anybody else engaging in this quote unquote business of virtual currency would have to get one of these licenses which requires a non-refundable $5,000 application fee just for the privilege of being told no, essentially, because that's probably what's going to happen for a lot of people. Even if you get a yes, then you actually have to buy the license itself and the bonds, you know, hire a compliance officer and all of these other costs that come along with actually complying with the license itself. And so it, it's just basically creating a huge financial burden on even individuals who just want to buy or sell Bitcoin from the general public. One of the things that really jumped out at me about this bill is uh, their definition of virtual currency. And I just want to read this uh, from the bill. <clears throat> virtual currency means any type of digital unit that is used as a medium of exchange or a form of digitally stored value or that is incorporated into payment system technology. So right there, anything that could be considered cryptocurrency, built on cryptocurrency, any sort of anything, they all, I mean, any sort of token runs through one of those systems. You've got every single thing. And that to me is just absolutely 
antithetical to the situation that we're in right now because it treats everything as money. It's rewriting history. It's rewriting a lack of laws that have, have led to the proliferation of innovation that we see with this kind of technology today. They're basically saying, okay, now that this technology has had a chance to mature a little bit, we're going to put handcuffs on it and make sure that it can't go anywhere without asking us for permission first. I have concerns about not only how this is going to affect my meetup and, of course, other businesses in the Valley and and the rest of California, closer to home, I'm concerned about how this would affect the LTB coin program. Like, would I, as somebody that gives away LTB coin through my Patreon campaign, fall under this? Would I be some sort of issuer or distributor of virtual currency? Am I engaging in the business of virtual currency by giving it away to my listeners? Are you engaging in the business of virtual currency by giving it away to content creators? Because they don't actually define what the business of virtual currency is. They create a whitelist for what it isn't, which is all these special exemptions. But anything else, which, which is a business that has anything to do with virtual currency, seems to fall under their definition or category. Well, it's it's of, not of even the business of virtual currency. Like people who go and trade at Buttonwood, they're not doing that as a profession. They're not like, oh yeah, I got to go make my money for the week going and selling, you know, currency at Buttonwood. It's a, it's a low volume, relatively speaking, volunteer affair where people, it's really, I mean, it's a social thing. A lot of it. A lot of it is, but there are a lot of people who that is their living. Like there have been more than a few people oh, cool. who come <laughs> through there that that's all they do is like local Bitcoins transactions and, and coming to meetups like that and, and buying and selling Bitcoins from people. Well, so should those people be considered in the business? I mean, like, is the, is the issue here that there's just the one standard? Is that the same as being a money services business that has to go through all of this rigmarole and have millions of dollars worth of, of insurance and I can't help but think that these are not the same thing fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like trying to regulate somebody that that sells stuff on Craigslist or or eBay in, in the same way as you would regulate like a business with a storefront that is doing like a lot of volume and they have employees and, you know, there's all this infrastructure around like having the business. I mean, I don't even believe in like those regulations in general. I believe that forcing people to buy a license before they can do business is, is not something that I would agree with. But it's the fact that these people are just coming to a meetup. They're agreeing on a price to buy or sell bitcoins in person, maybe cash or goods or services. Something is being exchanged for bitcoin or other virtual currencies, quote unquote. Just simply doing that maybe once, again, like they don't define what a business is or what kind of threshold you need to meet before you're considered a business. They just say engaged in the business of virtual currency. Like to say that doing that even once would require to pay a $5,000 application fee, acquire one of these licenses to buy bonds and insurance and stuff that's going to cover you for like millions of dollars in losses. Like that's the kind of stuff that I think a business that takes custodial possession of other people's money and assets would have to engage in, not somebody that's simply doing a face-to-face kind of one-to-one transaction, which is, I mean, relatively low risk for both sides, really looks a lot more like a Craigslist transaction. 
We should put retail businesses, brick and mortar businesses in charge of determining which Craigslist sellers get licenses. I think that people are going to have a much easier time getting rid of their uh, spare possessions if we're under that kind of regime. I, I would I would have to agree. No, I think that this is going to be something that is incredibly hindering to innovation and to just giving people a new kind of way to make a living. Unemployment is high. Jobs are hard to find at a time when we are facing financial challenges as, as a society that are kind of unprecedented in recent memory. It seems a bit, how do I say this politely? I mean, it doesn't seem smart to me to be imposing these kinds of barriers to innovation, to job creation, to people making a living for themselves that they can be productive members of society. This, this kind of thing is going to block access to people from acquiring bitcoins and from people making a living selling bitcoins. It, it just doesn't seem like the smart move if you're somebody that wants to see productive and, and successful society. So I think we could go on about this particular topic for hours. People in New York are dealing with the same kind of thing with the, the bit license. This is actually, I mean, if you read it, it's actually worse than the bit license. Yeah, it's broader. My hope is that with this petition that, that we're able to at least amass enough support to show that, that there are a large group of people in California, both users of this technology as well as entrepreneurs that are trying to provide people access to it, who say, no, we just will not stand for it. We're not going to try to water this down. We are saying, no, we don't want this at all. Like, you need to withdraw this bill. It's a bad idea. There haven't been any serious problems in California that this bill would address and the existing laws dealing with money transmitter businesses, money services businesses, fraud, and other kinds of criminal activity are more than enough, more than adequate to deal with whatever problems that they're hoping to address with this bill. It just seems to me like an obvious attempt to block out new competition from incumbents, whether in incumbent financial services businesses or incumbent cryptocurrency businesses. I don't think that's fair. Like you said, we could talk about this for a long time, but I would just say, you know, to anybody that's listening, you know, if you want to help support the freedom of, of cryptocurrency innovation in California and send a message to the politicians here, in, not only in California, but also everywhere else, there is a strong movement against these kinds of burdensome regulations. And I would really encourage you to go to change.org and, and check out the petition to withdraw AB1326. Let's assume for a second that this doesn't work and this bill actually gets passed and becomes law in California. What do you do next? You know, like I said, the meetup would have to shut down because I don't really want to facilitate criminal activity and it doesn't seem, it wouldn't really make sense to keep something going that nobody will be able to participate in. So I would have to shut the meetup down. I, as an individual, might be you know, looking for a new place to live because Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is such an integral part of my life that you know, I don't want to live somewhere that, where I'm not welcome. And what this bill tells me is that I and people like me are, are not welcome in the state of California. The only conditions that we would be welcome is if, if we pay some sort of 
outrageous fees to participate and be productive members of society here. And that, to me, the signal that that sends is that we are going to provide a disincentive for you to, to live here. So you don't want to pay for, the, for them to be the boss here? <laughs> Sadly, you know, I'm going to have to decline. You know, I might be looking for somewhere else to live. Um, I'll tell you, you know, Oregon like, is very nice. Oregon has a lot of the same advantages as California does, but they've got no income tax. I've heard good things about Oregon. I've heard good things about Austin. Austin's supposed to be uh, nice too, yeah. You know, I've heard good things about New Hampshire. Of course, it's really cold and snowy and all of that, yeah. but Liberty comes at a price sometimes, and having to shovel snow out of my driveway might not be that bad compared to dealing with this bit license stuff. Well, and it seems like that actually is really at the heart of this, is that for all of the bad that comes out of California, the reason why things aren't, you know, why people aren't leaving faster is just because it's so damn nice here. If you just tune out the government, tune out the, the locals and all that, not the local people, but the local, you know, municipalities and stuff like that, which also have the same very grabby habits, most of them. If it wasn't so nice here, like they couldn't get away with it in New Hampshire because people would complain. Well, if I can't be free and I have to live here, why would I want to live here? <laughs> but in yeah, California, it's a harder choice. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by the LTB Companion Wallet, which I'm really pleased to announce is available right now in the Chrome Store. If you've never gotten around to setting yourself up with a counter wallet so you can receive your share of LTB rewards, this is the kinder, easier, and more convenient way you've been waiting for. To get your free LTB Companion multi-token wallet, visit letstalkbitcoin.com and follow the link. It's pretty obvious. Once it's set up, Visit your letstalkbitcoin.com dashboard where you can enter your compatible address and add it to your account using the address verifier. That's all you need to do to start earning LTB coin rewards, except of course, use the site. You'll receive LTB coin for every comment or forum post you leave, the upvotes you receive, new articles you visit, and of course, our flagship Magic Words program. The Magic Words program tries to solve the problem of tracking how many people actually listen to the show all the way through. During each episode, I'll say a specific word, And listeners like you have seven days to visit their account on letstalkbitcoin.com or to use the magic words interface within our iOS application and enter that word, proving that not only did you listen, but that you're keeping up to date. Of all the activities that can earn you rewards, entering magic words is the most highly valued. Speaking of magic words, today's magic word is John. That's J-O-H-N, John. You've got until the 25th of April to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. So talk to me about BitSeed. We talked about this a little bit earlier when you were kind of going over your overview. You said that um, BitSeed is a kind of dedicated Bitcoin node hardware. And I've never heard of something like that before. Is this a completely new thing? More or less. I mean, there have been a number of different personal projects that people have taken on to try and create like a full node out of a Raspberry Pi or something like that. But Bitseed is a company that I would say is probably the first to provide at a kind of commercial level dedicated Bitcoin full node hardware. So the idea is that you have this little personal server half the size of a shoebox, maybe even smaller, that you 
plug into your wall, you plug into your router, and within a few hours, it's fully synced with the Bitcoin network and helping to support the health of the network. It's pretty simple, pretty so, low, low barrier accessible kind of way to participate in the Bitcoin network. You know? So I would love to run one of those. Uh, tell me how much they cost, uh, if they're available now. I'm not sure they're available yet. I have microwave internet here, so it sometimes is a little bit on the unstable side. Can I still use one of these? Can I still run a node with a relatively unstable connection, or will it not really help that much? Yeah, you could. So the node itself costs 149 It comes with a 160 gigabyte hard drive right now. We're looking at upping that in future models to like two or 250 gigabytes. How big is the blockchain um, right now? But the Bitcoin blockchain is about 30 gigabytes or so give or take. And then if you were to do some sort of indexing on it, add another 50 or 75% to the size so that like light nodes, they need a highly indexed kind of blockchain to pull transaction data specific to addresses that they're looking for. And Armory, Bitcoin, full nodes have built a separate database. What we do is we basically provide a backup Right now, every night, a uh, backup is created of the copy of the blockchain that you got stored on the device so that if you do like a hard shutoff and you end up corrupting the active Bitcoin database that you're working on, the next time the unit turns back on, it'll use the backup copy that it's got to replace the corrupted copy and then copy that copy that's just been transferred over back to create backup. another backup. Okay, yes. and so it's, it's, it's not creating like a million backups. It creates one and then replaces it every night. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It takes a, the, a snapshot of the blockchain, the active blockchain, and then that becomes the backup. And to answer your question about internet, it's best that a node has like full uptime, 24-7 full uptime so that it can be a, a healthy node relaying transactions all the time. But you know, I have a full node that runs on a PC that I just turn on once every few weeks and leave it running for a few days to catch up to the blockchain just so that I have my own personal copy of the blockchain. I mean, while it's on, it's doing stuff. It's helping. It's just that the more uptime it has, the better. And especially if you want to participate in a program like uh, what BitNodes is offering, where they basically have a lottery system for nodes that are registered with their service, they have like specific criteria or requirements that you have to meet to participate in their program as a node that has consistent amount of uptime and is consistently contributing to the health of the network to be eligible for their, it's like a $10 a week worth of Bitcoin giveaway. If you're but even idea, with an unstable connection, I still would be contributing just by having the thing plugged in and just having it be constantly on, even if there is, say, 10% downtime over the course of a day. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Every minute that the uh, full node is online, it's, it's helping. I mean, while it's on, it's relaying transactions. It's helping you by providing you a full copy of the blockchain and, and broadcasting your transactions to the network. Are there any downsides about running a full node? I would imagine one of the downsides is that it takes a computer and running Bitcoin on a computer and doing all of that stuff, it you know takes a bit of your processing power. And so that can be potentially kind of annoying. I'm just trying to figure out why is this a dedicated piece of hardware? As I mentioned, like I have a full node that runs on a PC that is a PC that I use for other things as well. It's the PC that I use for editing the podcast. It's a PC that I use for web browsing and a bunch of other things. 
it has intermittent kind of up and down time. Basically, if I have Bitcoin D or Bitcoin Core running, it limits what else I can do on the computer. As you mentioned, you know, it does take up processing power. It takes up RAM. You know, if I want to have an audio editing program open or audio and video editing or Photoshop or any other heavier program, it's not something that you want running at the same time as, as a Bitcoin full node. And so providing a dedicated hardware device um, basically is a way to offload all of that computational work onto a dedicated piece of hardware that you can plug into your wall, plug into your router, and leave on all the time. You might be on your computer for a few hours a day, turn it off, or you go on trips, you got to turn your computer off, maybe take it with you. And so it has inconsistent availability if it's running on your computer. And of course, as I said, it, it kind of just hogs processing power and computing power that could be going towards other things that you're trying to do. What a BitSeed or any other dedicated Bitcoin full node hardware offers is a way to offload that computational usage to a dedicated machine. Also have a machine that's always on and always connected to the internet. Even if your network, for whatever reason, has inconsistent uptime, 10% downtime is better than 50 or 60% because your computer is like on and off or you have to close the program to use other programs. It's just a way of giving people an easily accessible way to support the health of the Bitcoin network. So to use one of these, I would buy one and then I would essentially, you said, plug it into my router, plug it. So I'd plug in via Ethernet and I'd plug in uh, into power. Do I need to do anything else? Do I need any sort of interaction? You don't need to. If you want to check on it just to see if it's working, you can SSH into it or access it over HTTPS in your web browser. Okay. You can just do that but once it's just plug to and see play. if it works. But you know, you can do it that once to see it, if it's working, provided that you accept that it's going to work. You could just plug it in and let it go, and it, it works all on its own. So a node differs, a full node differs from a mining client in that the full node is just doing transaction propagation, just listening and then rebroadcasting essentially transactions that it hears rather than processing and validating them as miners do. But the flip side is, is that Mining is incentivized. There's a mining reward, but there's no propagation reward. There's no full node reward. So even though it's a really vital thing that makes it, then it's very important that it be decentralized. The incentive structure kind of leaves something out there. So, you know, you mentioned that BitNodes, um, you know, has this program with essentially like a raffle or a lottery or something like that for participation. And I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. Do you think that anything else is needed? Do you think, you know, whether at a protocol level or just at a like individuals doing a program, putting something together, guys like us trying to fix the problem, is more action required on this? Or do you think that just making something easy like this and cheap available might help to solve the problem? Because certainly like knowing about this product, I do want to run one. I am interested in running a full node. I just don't want to dedicate any of my computer power because I already have enough problems with computers as it is. Yeah. Um, so like that, to me, it's very appealing, but I'm not sure if necessarily that applies to everybody or if you think that there's more that's going to be needed to solve it. I think that programs like BitNodes are great, but it's also not entirely sustainable. Like it, it depends on altruism from in this case, the Bitcoin Foundation is one of the organizations that's sponsoring this or, or other businesses that are contributing to a program like this. So, yeah, that might not be sustainable. Programs like BitNodes, I think, are great. Certainly anybody who wants to participate in them when they run a full node, either with our hardware or with their own hardware, 
I think that's great. I don't actually think that anything's really required. Obviously, it would be better if something at the protocol level were done to incentivize full node production. But I think that the way that I kind of look at it with, with Bitseed, it can be something just like a router or a modem where people just accept that like you, you want to get one of these to participate in Bitcoin. Like you don't have to. You can leech off of other people's full nodes if you want to by, by using just light clients that connect to someone else's server. But you give things up by doing that. You, like there's a cost to doing that. You give up privacy. You give up some control when you rely on other people's full nodes to support but your so own convenient. usage of the Bitcoin network. Absolutely, it's convenient. And what we're trying to do is to provide another convenient way for people to run their own full nodes. And if they have a light client to be able to connect to their own full node so that they don't have to rely on third parties. And at the same time, they're supporting the decentralization and the health of the Bitcoin network. Like I said, in the same way that people expect to have to buy a modem and a router to, to participate in the Internet, you know, the way that we would sell this is, is to say, like, you buy a BitSeed box and you download a wallet app that's able to connect to it. And that's how you participate in the Bitcoin network. You've identified some things there that people already basically accept that they have to buy. Could this go into a router? I would buy a router that would have something like this built into it, and I would use it as my router. It could go into it. This thing could become a router. Yeah, it, but this is the first iteration. Someday, but this is the, yeah, this is the first iteration. We're saying this is a dedicated piece of hardware. If you support our project, you support Bitcoin, get one of these. And, and you know, we have, we have grand ambitions, grand plans of what we want to do with this, and we would love to have you come along for the ride. So you can find out more about that at bitseed.org. It looks like they were accepting, we're recording this on the 10th of April, it looks like they were accepting pre-orders through the April 9th, so you're past the pre-order stage. It was actually, we had a bunch in stock when we put the items on the website and people started coming and, and, and buying it, and we just sold out. So instead of turning people away who wanted to buy one, we just put this announcement that said, hey, you can pay now, but just understand that these are pre-orders for the next batch. And then once we're caught up, we'll be back to you know, shipping in-stock items only. And so that was just a, a way of letting people know, hey, you can buy it now, but you're going to have to wait a little bit for us to catch up because we've got to assemble more units and stuff and ship them out. At this point, yeah, items, by the time people hear this podcast, you know, if they order an item, it'll be shipping from in-stock. So, John, in addition to all of this other stuff, you're writing Bitcoin, Be Your Own Bank, which is a book about being your own bank with Bitcoin. Right. This was a project that uh, kind of came out of a crowdfunding campaign that I did late last year. As I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I was hired by the OK Turtles Foundation to help with fundraising and uh, to help with a crowdfunding campaign that was... I had actually never really done a crowdfunding campaign through one of these platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, so I wanted to see what it was like. So I thought I would do something low pressure, just something that I was already thinking about doing anyways. And so I thought I would do it for a book that I had in mind. And this book, the title at the time was BYOB, Using Bitcoin to Be Your Own Bank. Crowdfunding campaign itself didn't hit its goal. And I learned some lessons in doing that. But I did it as a flexible funding crowdfunding campaign. So I was going to do it regardless of whether or not it hit the goal. And over the next few months after the crowdfunding campaign was done, I worked on writing the book and I released the first version of it at the beginning of March. I'm approaching this book like an open source software project. So I'm going to be putting it on GitHub, kind of taking some inspiration from Andreas and, and what he did with Mastering Bitcoin there. 
accepting, you know, pull requests and issues and letting people fork it and this and that. And, and kind of going through an iterative release schedule. So right now, version one is released. It has four chapters. Next version that I'm going to be releasing uh, by the end of this month is going to have a fifth chapter, which is going to be about uh, colored coins. And then because Bitcoin is a constantly evolving project, the book itself, I, I imagine, will probably evolve over time as well. One of the interesting things about a book as a format compared to other formats is that generally they do have ending points. Good books tend to be about one kind of core idea. And then essentially what you've got is the start and the finish. And in that, you're supposed to kind of gain the context to be able to appreciate whatever the message is that the author is putting through that. What are you putting through this? The point of the book is to teach people how to use Bitcoin to be their own bank. Do you like that analogy? Because we've been talking to some people recently and they're like, oh, the worst thing people say is Bitcoin, be your own bank, because then you have to actually be your own bank and nobody wants to be a bank. So, I mean, like, do you think that that's a good thing? Yeah, you know, at the, at the end of the introduction, I say, like, keep in mind, like, being a bank is hard. <laughs> you've got to keep track of security. You've got to make sure that you're, you're managing the money wisely and stuff like that. Power is something that people need to be responsible with. And so, yes, Bitcoin is very empowering, but it comes with responsibility as well. And you can delegate that responsibility to other people. If you want other people who will be your Bitcoin bank, or you can choose to use Bitcoin kind of uh, as a sovereign individual and, and be your own bank. I think that it's an accurate metaphor for all of the reasons that we go through in the book, because you can essentially use a Bitcoin to replace all of the functions of the bank. And if you're the only one using it and not delegating any of that power to other people, then you are being your own bank. So this is an open source project, uh, which I love. I'm increasingly like, again, open source was so scary to me for a very long time because it threatens exclusivity. And exclusivity was so important to me. It was so important to me to be able to, like, if I was going to write a book, for example, you know, I would want to be able to control what's going to happen to that book. And if somebody's going to make money off it, it should be me because I wrote that book. Is this a book that you would sell? Yes, it's something that's going to be for sale right now. I'm just giving away copies of the PDF for people to review and give feedback. And I mean, if they get value out of it, that's great. If they want to send me tips, I have a Bitcoin address on the website. After this next version comes out, version two with the chapter on color coins, I think that's when I'll feel comfortable kind of releasing it in a, in a kind of like paperback kind of format and start printing physical copies of it to sell to people. The goal in, in writing this was really to, to have some sort of like authoritative document, which then I can create condensed versions of to print out in pamphlets so that people who are at fairs or festivals or other kinds of public events where you can do pamphleting can basically sell or give away condensed copies, which just gives the raw instructional material for how to start using Bitcoin to be your own bank today. I release all of my content copy left. And so anybody is free to copy it as long as any copies that they create are also copy left. I was told by an intellectual property attorney named Stefan Kinsella a long time ago, nobody is entitled to profit. We were having a discussion about intellectual property, and I was like, you know, I'm an artist. How am I supposed to make profits if I don't, you know, have intellectual property rights over my content? And he said, nobody is entitled to profit. And that, and that simple phrase has stuck with me for so long. It, it, it rings so true to me that... It's true. Like nobody is entitled, like just because you produce something doesn't entitle you to any kind of profits. You are given profits by the market being willing 
to pay you for your product. I don't think that, especially something like a digital item, which can be freely and infinitely reproducible at zero marginal cost, it doesn't make sense to put up barriers to people doing what is natural, which is copying it and sharing it with people. It's been a very instructive experience going through the process of writing a book and producing an ebook. I've already gotten great suggestions for how to improve on the next one. The title has changed since the project first came out because of a suggestion that somebody made on GitHub. I'm looking forward to continue improving the book and eventually printing out the physical copies that people can use as a tool to make it easy for other people to get into Bitcoin and learn how to be their own bank. So, John, this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come out here. He's actually sitting in front of me. This is very, very seldom. I think, John, you might be the only person who actually comes out here to do interviews with me. Uh, but, uh, um, but our first interview was about identity. And this was before you were really too involved in Bitcoin projects outside of doing uh, some basic consulting. And you told me all about kind of the where, where the future of distributed, you know, identity was going and how we're moving away from silos and moving towards actual people owning their identity and being able to do with it what they want as opposed to just like every place you go you leave a copy of your of your identity and they do whatever the heck they want with it so it's been like a year since we've talked about this you know in the remaining time we have left can you just kind of you know tell us what's happening with that side of things yeah it's actually been almost two years that was like really? june of God. june of 2013 that that we had that conversation and here it is almost halfway through april What's interesting is that BitSeed is almost a continuation of some of the ideas that I was looking at there. I mean, ultimately, BitSeed is just a personal server. We happen to be running Bitcoin on it right now, but there's no reason why you couldn't also run other software on it as a way to give people control of their data and provide people a place for their data to live so they don't have to rely on third parties to store that data for them. As part of that, you know, giving people control of their digital identity online. There have been a number of other projects that have come along since that conversation, which are also along these lines, doing decentralized social networking, decentralized storage, distributed identity, fulfilling that vision that is certainly not unique to me. I, I was just basically coming into this and seeing other people working on this in, in different spheres. And it's been really interesting to watch. Storage is looking at decentralized distributed storage solutions that are tokenized, so it's made safe, IPFS and Filecoin. And of course, there's companies like OneName, which are doing distributed identity right now based on Namecoin. They just recently released a software called Blockstore, which is doing distributed identity on Bitcoin itself. At the OK Turtles Foundation, we're working on software called DNS Chain, which is basically uh, provides a way to replace certificate authorities with the blockchain. It's something that a, a lot of people are working on in unique ways. It seems like it's only getting stronger the more that we hear about companies that have huge breaches where you know, millions of people's personal data is compromised in one, one fell swoop. There's more and more of a demand for distributed identity and distributed data storage solutions. It's really exciting to be at the kind of cutting edge of that. 
in the cryptocurrency community. So the future will be distributed. The future will be distributed and as such, peer to peer. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by the LTB Companion Multi-Token Wallet. It's counter-wallet compatible, free like speech and like beer, and available now at letstalkbitcoin.com. Content for today's episode was provided by John and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.